Good morning. You are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. Today is August 27th, 2013, and I, the anti-Mason William Morgan. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. That's why we call it the present. This is episode number 99, and presently we wish to inform you that the bear is waiting for you. Indeed. Thanks, Will. Hello, I'm Douglas Bowles, and when you are a bear of very little brain and you think of things, you find that sometimes a thing which seems very thingish inside you is quite different when it gets out into the open and has other people looking at it. Today on 42 Minutes, that's exactly what we will conduct. We're pleased to consider the thingness of Billy Moon, the, <laughs> the debut novel published today from Tor Books by our guest, Mr. Douglas Lane. Mr. Lane is a writer, blogger, philosopher, and podcaster whose short fiction has been featured in magazines nationally and abroad. He is the author of several story collections and novellas, of which you can find at Amazon. More information about him and his work can be found on his website, douglaslane.com. For the past four years, Mr. Lane has hosted the Diet Soap podcast, which is dedicated to applying imagination and intellect to the problem of late capitalism. It's a lot of fun. You should check it out. Recently, Douglas has staged a successful Kickstarter funding his upcoming Think the Impossible book tour. Congratulations on the book and the tour, and welcome to 42 Minutes. Hey, thanks, and thanks for having me on. You bet. You bet. Um, well, let's start with the book tour. How much money did you make on your Kickstarter, and, and where are you going, and, and when can you know, so we can let our listeners where you're going to be? Well, I, I made over a little over four grand, and uh, I'm going to be in San Francisco and Chicago and New York, and I'm going to go to Decatur, uh, Georgia as well for a book uh, festival there, and I'm going to go to San Francisco twice. Uh, once coming right up in September and then again in October for something called Writers with Drinks, which is a, a variety show in, in San Francisco. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and what was the second part of the question? Well, I'm just – is there a place we can find those dates so that – Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I'll, the, the dates are – and you can find them on my Kickstarter page, and I'm going to put them up on my blog at douglaslane.com later today probably um, – and Lane is spelled L-A-I-N. And I'm going to be in San Francisco on September 7th. Uh, I'll be in Chicago on September um, 13th. No, yes, I'll be on. No, I'll be in Chicago on September 11th. Why did I want to not say that? I'll be in Chicago <laughs> on September 11th, and then I'll be in New York on September 15th. Awesome. Okay, so think the impossible. What what is? Well. I've been um, trying to understand what reality is and what political reality is, and I've come to the conclusion that uh, reality is impossible and social life is impossible as well, and yet there it is. And so what I, uh, what I think about when I try to think about the impossible is the, as a, what's contradictory in our society. So when I'm going on tour to think the impossible, I'm trying to think about the kinds of contradictions that set up lived experience and social life um, and that seem impossible that we, we, need, we still have to think through. 
So then, <laughs> does that make any sense at all? It's very early in the morning. I've been up since. <laughs> well, no, no, yeah. It seems like. It, so why did I name the tour "Think the Impossible"? Sure. Kind of, okay. Um, because I wanted to point out something about our situation today. Uh, especially from kind of a leftist perspective. And I wanted to use my book, Billy Moon, which is about May 1968, to bring attention to what I think is uh, key today, That we something that we miss. Well, I'm told that young people today don't have any historical context. So could you give us a quick history lesson about 1968 and... Yeah, so... And why Paris? Right, well, it, it May 1968... Um, is all about Paris and then France because what happened was uh, student protests uh, in the suburbs of Paris at Nanterre developed into a general strike that took the whole country within about two weeks. It went from a few students protesting at Nanterre into Paris at the Sorbonne and then it spread out and became a workers and student strike that took all of, of France. And for the month of May, it looked like really they were going to be able to, the the students and workers were going to be able to overthrow the Gaullist regime, the current uh, government, and possibly change the basis of society. That was the aim of a good portion of the people who were in the streets and uh, occupying the factories. So that's why May 1968, because there was a moment there where it looked like people were going to be able to change the way we live and change society at least in france and that was part of a movement that was going on around the world there were a lot there was a lot of unrest and and protest in the united states there were was a similar thing that happened in mexico that i'm not as much of an expert on but uh, there were strikes and, and student protests there that were quite big and in general 68 was a kind of a revolutionary year and so that's the that's the 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 background uh, but like the ground zero of your book on some level. Right, right, right. So what I want to do is figure out when I wrote Billy Moon, one of the reasons I wrote it was to try to figure out why such a great experiment and great protest like what happened in 68, why this mass movement, which seemed truly egalitarian and also really radical, could fail so dramatically and what would it take to think about something like that that could succeed? And one of the things I think it would take is to think through the kinds of contradictions that set up daily life now and uh, the, the kinds of impossibilities that, that uh, we live with every day. Like, like one impossibility to kind of give you a sense of it is the impossibility of equality. We right. live in a world, we live in a society where people are equals. Only that that equality between people is only based on one level. It's, you can only, only find equality at the mall or in the market. Uh, when, you, when you're out shopping, everyone's equal. But when you go to work, that goes away. Everyone's not equal. Or even when you go home, because some, everybody doesn't have the same access to land and things like that. So... Uh, there's only an equality in one realm, and that equality is set up based on a, a, an inequality, a class society. 
So uh, what I want to point out is how what we want always has to be set up on its opposite and to try to figure out what we can do with that information. There seems to be so much going on in this year in 1968. It keeps coming up over and over again. This is the release of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like a, a day later, it was Planet of the Apes. A couple of days later, it was Martin Luther King. This is all in April. So then right on top of that is May, and there seems to be even more explosions politically. Mm-hmm. They're just it, it was a charge. I feel like I was left out because I wasn't born until 78, 10 years later. Apple Records started in May. That's... Mm-hmm. Well, you seem... All of your work seems to be politically driven, but why wrap it in fantasy? Well, uh, because I think the kind of politics I'm interested in are not the kind of politics that uh, are realistic. I mean, in other words, I don't like to be hemmed in by the kind of mechanisms of political thought that we have to live with in this society. I want to think of a new and different kind of society. So that's some kind of a matter of fantasizing. At the moment, I don't have uh, – I'm not living there. There's, I, I don't have any way to transport myself to a world in which is better than this one fundamentally, has a better contradiction maybe. So I have to uh, you know, fantasize to think about it. The other thing is because in order to make change, in order to make radical change, you have to kind of – except that what we take to be real now isn't rock solid and the fantasy genre or surrealist or strange writing it that has that ability to kind of crack uh, realism and, and show the the unreality that's always at work in in the world well Billy moon seems to be I mean, well, let's just slow down a second and say well it's very who much is aware Billy of itself moon? right. Who is- <laughs> Who is Billy Moon and why? And what is this bear is waiting for you? What is, what is this? Okay. So Billy Moon was Christopher Robin Milne. And Christopher Robin Milne was the man who, when he was a boy, was the basis for A.A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh stories. So the reason he, he, he had the nickname Billy Moon was because his parents wanted to call him William and because as a young uh, boy, he couldn't pronounce his own last name. He called it. He called himself a Moon instead of a Milne, and so they called him Billy Moon. And the question you were asking after that was, why did I write about Christopher Robin Milne, and what does it mean? What did it mean when he said the bear was waiting for him? Because mm-hmm. that's a line from the book. It's a, a student, a young student uh, at uh, Nanterre, writes to Christopher Robin in '68, probably April of '68 inviting him to Paris, knowing that something's cooking because he wants to have the help of Christopher Robin for a variety of reasons to, to, to help with the student movement and the, the strike. Now, Chris Robin is not a political person. He's a fictional character, especially in the mind of the student. And what the student means when he says the bear is waiting for you is he means that the, his, his own childhood and his own problem uh, is waiting for him in Paris because Christopher Robin wanted to escape Winnie the Pooh. He he was tired of being a fictional boy, and he was a man. He was a veteran of World War II. Mm. Okay, so in 1968, how old is – and so for our listeners, to be clear, there really is a Christopher Robin. Right, and you, was. 
<laughs> yes. He died. He died in 1997. Okay. This is going to get confusing. But you you take this historical figure, yeah. and then fictionalize him. Yes. Yes. And okay. how old is Christopher Robin in 1968? He's 48 years old. And mm-hmm. so he's having his own identity crisis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in reality, I don't know if he had an identity crisis when he was in his late forties. He but wrote doesn't some, everyone, <laughs> maybe. But you know, the thing about Christopher Robin was that he was a very mature person. Really, he wrote some very good books um, about growing up as Christopher Robin, but also about his views of of uh, about God. He was a humanist. Um, his views about nature. He was a naturalist. Um, mm. Uh, and an environmentalist so he wrote some good books a couple of good memoirs just about being a milne about his own father about being raised by nannies but also about uh, you know running a bookshop and in devon and about being a vet in world war ii there's some very interesting stories about his time in italy uh in his memoirs and you know i fictionalized some of those stories from his memoirs in in my book um but the 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 question was, why did I put him in when he was 48 years old? Or No, my point was also that he was middle-aged, but, but he ne- didn't necessarily – wasn't the kind of person that would you would openly admit to being in a midlife crisis. Okay. I mean, he was the kind of person that would probably want to be middle-aged, to be established. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was not as much uh, into the youth culture as we are. I mean, you know, nowadays the reason people go into a midlife crisis is because they're losing something. They're losing their their youth, and that wasn't oh. something that that Christopher Robin necessarily was concerned about losing. So he wanted to leave Neverland, or like yeah. Pinocchio the wanted the hundred acre woods. Yeah, yeah. Right. To, but so the thing that for us that is super fascinating is um, uh, we spoke. It must have been last year to Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, and he has a great book called Mutants and Mystics, where he kind of right. sketches out a, a, a common theme in, in comic books where the characters in the book recognize that they're characters, they're fictional characters. And your your book does that too. Your book is very much aware of what it is with yeah. the story inside of a story inside of a fiction and, mm. and inside a poetic license. <laughs> I'm very interested on how all of this is concerned with dream time, though, and how the book itself is sort of kind of a lucid dream. It is, isn't it? Um, I kind of touched as lightly as I could on the notions of the, the dream time uh, that I that kind of sprinkled throughout the book. I was interested in uh, dream time as something that might be parallel to ideology. Because, you know, I'm always thinking from the left kind of perspective. So uh, the dream time is the kind of mythic life that we feel that we're connected to that allows us to live our everyday lives. And recognizing that you're in a dream time uh, gives you power over your everyday life because a dream isn't as fixed as reality. So that's why I wanted the book to kind of have that quality of being a lucid dream because – the more the characters were self-aware of being in a fiction, the more likely they were to be able to try to alter it. How does this play into, say, the law of correspondences or what you know became 
uh, New Thought and the Secret? Oh, okay. This is going to be one of those kind of talks. <laughs> so, but, I mean, so you're talking about changing. It doesn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not at all an advocate of that. Um, it just seems that Winnie the Pooh has, I mean, because of the Tao of Pooh and stuff like that, there's a very powerful, almost innocent spiritualism behind Pooh. And for right. some reason, the Billy Moon, the title and its history kind of carry on with that. There's a, there's a little bit of an innocent, but you're dealing with such an adult, mature subject matter. Because not only do you have the 48 you know, midlife crisis, you already have what would basically be France's midlife crisis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. They're certainly in crisis as they try to modernize after World War II. Um, and, and uh, yeah, so about the secret, here's the difference between <laughs> <laughs> um, what I'm talking about and the secret. In the secret... You are this whole person that can manifest your desires directly by just thinking about them. Yes. Right? Yes. In, the, in a dream like, that's more like ideology, you are as much constructed by the dream as you are uh, the dreamer. You're both a dream character and the dreamer to some degree, but you can't quite – you're not exactly the same thing. The dreamer and the dream character are not identical. So taking uh, control of your life means that you, you can, it's not something you can just do directly. You have to do it with, first of all, you have to do it with other people or other dream characters. You have to do it through the story. You can't just do it, like, magically. Um, and, you know, maybe something magical will happen, but it's got to be connected to the whole story. And then the, the other thing uh, is that whenever, whatever you do is going to have to have a, a contradiction in it, that nothing happens just directly. Because if it did, then that would just be real. We're not in that kind of space. We're kind of half real, half unreal. That's the contra- – you know, we're, for anything to happen, there has to be a space – where it didn't happen in order for it to, to happen there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if for something to exist, there has to be nothing for it to exist in. So that that's kind of what keeps it from being just this direct wish fulfillment because you don't know what your wishes really are you, you, until, you, until they manifest. And whatever you think you want is always going to come with something that you don't want. It's like the monkey's paw. <laughs> okay and so after that that uh comment i'm i'm thinking about uh what is the movie called where you spin the top and the dream you're oh. in the what is that movie called will keep working on it keep working on it <laughs> <laughs> you got leonardo DiCaprio. oh, like, inception. oh inception. inception there we go Good job. I knew you could do it, Doug. <laughs> Thanks. So as far – I mean so like that um, – this is a pretty hard nut we got here that we're trying to crack. So could you speak about – So I'm the nut? No, no, no. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's, it's this notion of society you know, like, uh, and creating the world that you want to be in and how you do that. 
And so it's interesting because another another part of this book is the I, I the what happened in 2011 with the Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like there was another movement that was trying to change um, materialistic capitalism into something that's more livable or less contradictory. Uh, And so I'm wondering, you know, so talk about 1968 and 2011. Okay. Well, you know, the the, the Occupy Wall Street movement, the, the people who kind of spearheaded that, got that running in Zuccotti Park who called the you know the date for it and they they were working for Adbusters magazine that's where that came from and which Adbusters- is a contradiction in itself because I, I always think that Adbusters here you're you know they're criticizing the things by doing the things that they're criticizing give me you mean like those no label like well uh, so like their ads maybe? it's like it's not a very deep magazine you know, so as far as the the type of media that they're criticizing, they are exactly that type of media. Yeah, they they do a lot of parody ads and things, and they have a very slick look to them, and they kind of have a they almost look half the time like a fashion magazine. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. The idea behind Adbusters is an idea that came out of May '68 and a little before. It came out of the Situationist International, which was the idea of detournement or derailment. Is how I say it in my book. Where you take something from popular culture and you alter it just enough so it means the opposite or something not quite the same as what it meant originally. Um, you ever heard of the group Negative Land? Yeah. They do that kind of thing. They like they were sued for for taking U2s. I still haven't found what I'm looking for and making a seven-minute-long uh, kazoo and acapella version with clips and run backwards uh, from the original song. And, and so they, they do this kind of cut up into determinant or derailment um, uh, of, of pop culture. And that's what Adbusters is doing too. So you're trying to take the culture and alter, uh, take the culture and alter it enough, take images from advertising and alter them enough so that they have a new meaning, a utopian meaning, um, which is one of the things that uh, the characters in my book was trying to do. With Christopher Robin, take Christopher Robin out of his everyday context, put him into Paris, and and alter him so that the child with his bear became a, something a little different, more revolutionary, more utopian. Um, so that's the aim of. I just, of I just see Winnie the Pooh with a beret. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, in this in the novel, the Winnie the Pooh just is an actual bear instead of a stuffed one. Ah. It's interesting to read some of the slogans that come that came out of France in 1968. A cop sleeps inside each one of us. We must kill him. Drive the cop out of your head. Yeah. We don't want to uh, be the watchdogs or servants of capitalism. One said, commute work, commute sleep. But this is the best one right here, and I want to get your opinion on it. Those who lack imagination cannot imagine what is lacking. I like that. Yeah. Uh, the what's the thing about that is that uh, imagination always comes out of a lack. Imagination is what uh, what we use to fill in for this kind of our the gap in, in in our life or in our perception. You know, you don't quite see what's there, so you kind of imagine what's there. Okay, so here's 
I want to live in a better better world. You know, you, live in a, you almost said I want to live in a bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell live me in a bedroom. about your mother. No, go ahead. <laughs> All right, we're gonna go there. I'm not just giving you props. I was gonna be one of those conversations. <laughs> I, just, um, I, just, I had to get Freudian on you. Okay, go ahead. Go on. Oh no, I've lost it. It just came off. See, oh. I'm a radical. I come in and disrupt the whole thing. Okay, so. <laughs> Well, we were talking about adbusters. I want to cut in and go back to adbusters for please, a second. And please, please. All, right. All right, good. Before you talk about your bedroom again, I, so <laughs> uh, uh, what? Uh, what I wanted to point out was that the Occupy Wall Street movement was definitely influenced by what happened in '68 and the Situationist uh, critique of capitalism, and all of that were, are definitely really obvious influences on adbusters, and then through that on the Occupy movement. The thing to remember about what happened in May 68 was that it failed. Mm. These strategies didn't ultimately get the kind of society created that they wanted. They're really interesting and fun, but at this point, we may, may need to think beyond them. So that's one of the things I wanted to do in my book. Now I'll let you talk about. Well, no, so like <laughs> that leads me to think about, so like a lot of religious movements, they have this end date, like this is the eschaton, right? Here it is. When we reach this point, this is the new world. And, you know, we've had them for years and years and years. You know, the religious, these crazies, and we put that in air quotes, these crazies over here have decided that this, you know, and so we had this huge, huge, huge um, day. It's like a synchronicity holiday. Terrence McKenna says, December 21st, 2012, right? <laughs> Wasn't that a disappointment? Go <laughs> that thing, it's like how from our from our perspective, we it's hard to know that we haven't entered a new world because you know, so it's like how do we know? So like as you speak about sixty-eight as a failure, you know, it did didn't create this new world that we can perceive, but you know, did it? Well, there were some things that did change because of sixty-eight. I mean there were changes in the university there were certainly changes in in the culture and the and the, it became a more permissive culture after 68 one of the things that the students were protesting was the fact that they were the the dorms um were off limits like co-ed dorms didn't exist and you couldn't go and visit your girlfriend after a certain time and it had to be chaperoned and all that so there was a a, a change in in mores after 68 um, but none of those things were what the students and workers were actually fundamentally aiming at. And I think to be able to truly judge whether you've got the kind of transformation of society that you want, you have to pretty, have a pretty thorough critique of this one. You have to know what it is that is, is broken. It comes back to that contradiction and what is the fundamental contradiction in our society. And I think the fundamental contradiction is that one I spoke of at the beginning about equality that we live in a world where the only kind of equality we have is in the market at the mall. And even that's not equality because right, it's goods are on, set at a certain price and people with – Right. Yeah. But you have freedom to – if you have the money, you have freedom to choose what you want to do with your – If you have money, you have freedom for everything. Right. <laughs> right. But what You get we better justice. You get better education. Well, you get – It's funny though. If you have – you have to have a, quite a lot of money to have the kind of freedom that uh, I, I think people should be seeking, which is the freedom to not just – get what they want from the world, but to produce and change the world. Like right now, only a few people get to set up 
what what's going to be the next big thing or what we're going to work on um you know and even and always it's being set up in the in the service of profit so you can't imagine projects that aren't going to you know be exploitive of workers and ultimately profitable anything else that anything that doesn't do that is you know it might happen but it's always going to be secondary and so what I want to do is imagine a society where we make things, where we do things together, collective, we form collective projects based on our own desires and initiatives rather than in the service of profit. And so that kind of freedom where we would have the freedom to be creative uh, rather than just consumers is, is the, the, the dream. But I always have to keep in mind that everything you want to set out to get always comes with this contradiction. And I have to, frankly, I haven't thought through what the contradiction would be in a society where people are, are free to be more productive. Uh, and that, and that's like the, where I want to go. It's so like a lot of people sense that capitalism is broken. Well, it's yeah. interesting at the very beginning of the book, he says something along the lines of, are we, are we going to partner up with Disney? <laughs> <laughs> You know, you remember at the very beginning yeah. of Billy Moon, he's he's just yeah. like, I'm sick of this bear. So in a way, the bear itself kind of represents this Disney-ish propaganda-like com- consumerism. Yes. Yeah. And what's yeah. the commodity? So the, the movie Wally, right? So it's about how we're junking up the world. Yeah. And then you go to the theater, and they give you all this plastic junk. <laughs> like, you know, here's the swag you get to see the movie that tells you that we shouldn't have any swag. <laughs> all right, that's yeah. a very good point. Yeah, the, but yeah, that's a contradiction you can't avoid. Once you're, I mean, the thing is, unless I were was able to write a book that was so good that everyone would want to read it, and then everyone would know the answer, and then you know, I don't know, we would all wish our way like in the secret to a new society and instantaneously. <laughs> unless I was able to do that, I'm gonna have to go out and like, what do I? I'm against capitalism, but I'm uh, going out and hawking my book as much as I can <laughs> to try to get right. people to buy it. So, yeah, there's always these, this is this is a thing, and any critique in the, of this society now that doesn't aim at transforming it is always going to be fragmentary and contradictory and, and only half useful. And certainly Wally is <laughs> only half useful if that, if that. But so I think of capitalism in terms of like a system. And then I wonder, you know, does the system program us or do we program the system? And so, you know, it just seems like as the system goes on, the, the stakes go way up and up and up and up. It's a natural painting. We program the system and it programs us. Okay. But, but the main thing is there is like this, there's a, it's like a game too, because there are a few rules that we've created and we, that we haven't changed in a long time. The rule of exploitation, the rule of profit making and the rule of the market. Those haven't changed. And uh, since feudalism, since we, since we became capitalists or, and so that's what we have to try to, been hundreds of years in this system and we want to get and it. it seems hard when you have this conversation because oftentimes it seems like there are those who think it's the system and the system has to go we need a completely new system uh-huh. but then there are other people who say no it's just the core of the system so like they want to stay within the in within the framework of capitalism and they think that somehow we can do a thoughtful form of capitalism what yeah, you- 
I don't agree with that. I, I would agree we need to just change the core of the system. But you have to know what that core is. And the core of the system is not greed. The core of the system is is exploitation and the production of surplus value through the process. Of, I mean, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I could give you – you have to read like three volumes of Capital and then you understand <laughs> what the core of, of, of the system is. But the main thing is you do uh, – we have a system of production that's aimed at creating abstract value, which is this thing called money and, and uh, which – no matter how nice you are, no matter how thoughtful you are or generous you are, if you're in business, you have to exploit workers for a profit, and you have to try to maximize that. And you know, what you can you can try to reform it, but ultimately, it's going to have lots of inhumane um, consequences, and ultimately, it's going to go into crisis. I mean, one thing about ca- capitalism is that it it kind of sets itself up to fail every couple. of generations <laughs> you know there's these depressions and things that happen and that and that seems built into capitalism too it's not like it's not running well it's running well when it goes into depression that's how it fixes itself right so it's a real it's a nasty little game we're playing and we fig- got to figure out better ones well, yeah and it seems like war is a component of the system too yeah that, yeah um so you're cho- you choose to address these issues through your fiction, and you seem to be a, a well-read individual as far as fiction is concerned. I mean, who are some of the individuals who inspired you? There's this guy named Philip K. Dick. If you, have you heard of him? <laughs> oh, it's going to be one of those kind of conversations. <laughs> He is a big no, influence. no. Tell us about this guy. What, what, what does uh, he, he do? He was a he was kind of an oddball, and he <laughs> he uh, he wrote uh, thousands of pages about his mystical experiences, and and he wrote some great books like Valis. And which which one's your favorite uh, uh, Philip K. Dick book? Oh, Radio Free Abelmuth, I think. Just really, I like to switch back and forth right between now. different ones, and I'll tell you why. Is because I'll start getting engrossed with. Oh, wait, that's what he meant by that. And then I'll start looking at the book in a whole new light. So do, do you, I haven't read Radio Free. Because the, the way that Radio Free strikes me is there's a – it's just like Vallis, but there's a uh, part in there where a police state grabs him and says something to him along the lines of, yeah, you're going to die. We're going to put somebody in your place to continue writing books in your name and make them propaganda for the state. And I think about his movies, like after he died, like, you know what I mean? Like I watch, I've watched quite a few of those too. And I'm seeing like, oh, they ruined it. Yeah. Which ones do you like of the, of the movies? I do like Scanner Darkly. Yeah. I like that one too. I like, uh, I like Blade Runner, you know. But the thing about Blade Runner and when it came out was there's just nothing like it. I mean, it was yeah. those best the the special effects at the very beginning were more clean than Star Wars. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like what Star Wars was trying to be, and that that like developed that K Dick world that we have in our our minds of fly cars and stuff. Right. Although you know, Mike Philip K. Dick world is some dirty, uh, you know, back office with you know little pieces of plastic all over the floor. It's like it's being spewed out of some machine somewhere in the corner that's broken, and some schlub trying to fix the thing. That's Philip K. Dick's world, not 
flying cars so much because for Phil Dick it was always about the little guy, the Kipple and the entropy. Yeah, Kipple, Kipple. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, but I should read Radio Free. I I think I read Vallis and liked it so much I didn't want to read. Well, Radio when Free I read Radio Free, Ultimate, it was no, it was like meeting someone again for the first time because, because it's so similar. You get to have the experience again. It's like oh, I know this. You know, it's like recognizing someone or seeing someone you know in someone different. It's like oh, it's yeah. his, it's his initial. Wizard you can Oz, tell that he stuff. was messed up in the head. You can tell. I mean, he was an agoraphobic. <laughs> He was very paranoid, and I think that Radio Free shows a lot more paranoia than Vallis. Vallis it's is a lot darker than Vallis. Vallis is a lot more polished, though. Either, which is one of the reasons why it's probably not as popular. There's a lot of great humor in Vallis. I think it's one of his masterpieces, for sure. Oh, yeah. man, when they're sitting there on the couches, like, arguing about the cat and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's like true humor to me. Did you ask God about your cat? <laughs> <laughs> and you can see how that's Scanner Darkly. I mean, it's like basically the same group of people that are sitting around doing too many drugs in Scanner Darkly as his group of friends that he would philosophize with. Yeah. Have you talked to some of those people for We've, your show? No, I wish that we had. We have talked to... Um, Tessa, right? Tess, yeah. We did yeah. talk to Tessa Dick. Yeah. And but uh, that was an eye opener. But I don't know, you know, I would like to hear it from as many points there, of view as possible. There's K.W. Jeter, who was a friend of his, and uh, what's the other guy? The guy who wrote the sequel to Blade Runner. What was his name again? Uh, I have to try to remember. Well, I'm writing this writer. down, so yeah. <laughs> I'll investigate. <laughs> um, go ahead. Anyhow, is but there the, any yeah, other like, ones that we need to know about? I mean, anybody else other than K. Dick that? As far as literary... Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, right. Other than... It's, it's, we could talk about... I could come on and talk about Philip K. Dick for a whole episode. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, well, yeah. I mean, I like um, Kurt Vonnegut quite a lot. I, I like uh, Haruki Murakami. Um, uh, there's there's a... Uh, the thing about Vonnegut I like is the metafictional uh, qualities in his work. Um, well, you say so, that in your in your your blog recently that you write this book as if you're writing it for a Trough Mo, Mo, oh gosh I can't say that Trough <laughs> Madorian yeah, yeah from, yes. from Slaughterhouse uh, Five. Five yeah I mean I, I I kicked that idea around when I think about it I I certainly didn't sit down and think when I started writing that I wanted to write a book like one that a Trough Madorian could read and that's a book that happens all at once right right but I was trying to kind of come up with a way to communicate easily without having to read large sections of my book uh the idea of the dream time as i understood it in the book and the dream time as a totality that backs up the kind of linear experience that we have so this idea that we're in us in some sort of eternity um where everything's already happened right yes and that and then that understanding of what that eternity is is what allows us to make judgments about what's happening in our in our linear you know lives so we we always have these kind of visions of eternity or t- of, of totalities uh in mind in order to have these partial uh contingent lives <laughs> that are finite we're getting close to the end here yeah, I know. um and so 
Are you of the mind, and I think I heard, I, I wish I could find the quote, Slavoj Zizek say. <laughs> Zizek. I had Zizek. said Zizek for years before I got that right. But I, yeah, I'm a big fan of Zizek or Zizek. Yeah. Zizek. Zizek. Um, you got to wipe your nose when you say it. <laughs> I think I heard him say that the new system will, like a phoenix, come out of the ashes of the old system. Are you of that mind, or do we dream it and then – so like the Buckminster Fuller, you know, don't try and challenge the system. Create a new system that makes the old system uh, pointless. I think you have to do both. I think you have to overturn this system and at the same time have an idea of the kind of world you want to live in. I think there are political forces and, and that will uh, oppose – oppose you and i think that uh you know you're gonna have to try to struggle for political power people will have to struggle for political power in order to to change the world but if they don't have any kind of vision as to what kind of new society they want they're just going to recreate the one they're in you can have your coup you can have your revolution and look at the soviet union it's a perfect example they never escaped capitalism they continued to exploit workers their economy was basically a state capitalist economy because they hadn't I mean, I'm not blaming. I mean, it was at the beginning. It was a noble, beautiful moment, but it died kind of like Occupy or '68. Only it didn't fail this, the same way. But you know, they didn't have the vision of a, a new world, uh, a new kind of economy. And so you have to have that. But I don't think you can just. It's not a technical problem. You can't just solve it by saying, "Well, we'll just you know distribute things faster, or we'll network everything really well." Or something. you got to have a. It's going to take some sort of event, some sort of break to to get to a new society, I think. Thank you. You've been listening to Douglas Lane on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Lane can be found at douglaslane.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guest, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like what you hear and would like to support the show, just follow the link on the website to the donation page. Thank you, and if ever there is a tomorrow that we're not together, there is something you must always remember. You are braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. But the most important thing is, even if we're apart, we'll always be with you. Thank you. Run, comrade. The old world is behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for Come coming on. Come on, let's on. sing this the internationality was... together. All right. <laughs>